Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 50. Last week, I covered how the war between the allied Israelite tribes and their brethren, the Benjaminites, unfolded. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up with what happened to the few Benjaminite warriors that survived and pressing forward. And with that, let's get started. Picking up with the text of Judges chapter 21, paraphrased. The Israelites swore at Mizpah, though likely before the actual fighting began, but it also could have been after. Either way, they took an oath that none of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. Then, and certainly after the fighting had ended, the people of the other eleven tribes went up to Bethel and sat there until evening before God. So, in front of the ark, perhaps the tabernacle, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly, welling and gnashing of teeth. They cried out, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has it come to pass that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? They were now regretting the oath they had made, to put into place a policy that would lead to Benjamin dying off within a generation, if not sooner. But, as Ehud has shown, an oath is an oath, if only they could find a loophole. The next day, while still at Bethel, the people arose early, built an altar, and offered burnt offerings and sacrifices of well-being. Then they said, Who, out of all of the tribes of Israel, did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? We're reminded that they had taken another oath, vowing that whoever did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, would be put to death. I'll get to the answer to that question in a minute. Then a turnabout. The Israelites had compassion for Benjamin, saying, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters as wives. Still looking for that loophole. They thought on the question for a moment finally arriving at another question that led to an answer. They asked, Is there anyone from the tribes of Israel who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? Somehow, someone remembered that no one from Jabesh-Gilead had come to the camp, to the assembly. There is a bit of debate concerning which tribe Jabesh-Gilead was from, which I'll get to when I cover that place in the near future. For now, no, it's generally thought to have been part of the eastern half of Manasseh. Back in Judges, there was a roll call. When no one from Jabesh Gilead answered here, the people knew they had found their loophole, or at least one of the necessary loopholes. Now, they had to solve the problem of getting unwed women from this Manasseh town to the 600 Benjaminite men taking refuge at Rimen. And this is where a bad what, through a modern lens, seems like a less-than-holy war, takes an even more twisted turn. The congregated eleven tribes sent 12,000 soldiers to this single town with orders to put the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead to the sword, including the women and the little ones. The text reads, This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman who has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. Long story short, they executed, massacred everyone in this town, 
simply in order to keep their vow and also not to drive the Benjaminites to extinction. In Jabesh Gilead, they did find 400 women said to be young virgins. They brought these girls to the camp at Shiloh. So, while managing to keep their vows, they killed off an untold number of their brethren and kidnapped others. Keep in mind, this is why we were told of the other vow near the beginning of the chapter. When they had asked, Who, out of all the tribes of Israel, did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? We're reminded that they had taken another oath, vowing that whoever did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah would be put to death. This as justification of what they had done to part of Manasseh. These are the things that don't get taught in Sunday school. I remember when I began the podcast over six years ago, I said I was covering everything, warts and all. And this is a particularly warty episode in the history. After the girls had been gathered together, a message was sent to the 600 Benjaminite men hiding at the Rock of Rimen, a message of peace. Upon hearing this overture, these men returned home. Of course, their homes had been razed and burned, so they at least returned to their territory. When they got there, they were given the 400 girls, meaning that some 200 of the Benjaminites were left single. Or as the text put it, the other tribes gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead, but they did not suffice for them. The next sentence speaks volumes about the Israelites, and remember, this was just after their last massacre. The people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Compassion. The elders of the congregation spoke up, saying, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since there are no women left in Benjamin, meaning they needed to take care of the remaining 200? There must be heirs for the survivors of Benjamin, in order that a tribe may not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give any of our daughters to them as wives. And they had sworn, Cursed be anyone who gives a wife to Benjamin still looking for a loophole. So, they hatched a plan. They said, Look, the yearly festival of the Lord is taking place at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Sheshem, and south of Labona. This celebration was likely the annual festival of the 15th of Av. During this celebration, young Jewish women danced in the vineyards of Shiloh, with some thinking this was also known as the Festival of Love, though that interpretation could have been assigned after this episode. The Israelites then instructed the Benjaminites, saying, Go, and lie in wait in the vineyards and watch. When the young women of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards, and each of you carry off a wife for himself from the young women of Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin. As a reminder, Shiloh was in the tribe of Ephraim and was considered, at the time, the religious center of Israel. The allied Israelites tell the Benjaminite men that if the girls' fathers or brothers come to complain, they will say to them, Be generous and allow us to have them, because we did not capture in battle a wife for each man. 
but neither did you incur guilt by giving your daughters to them. The last loophole needed, at least for that vow. The Benjaminites did as instructed, taking a wife for each of them. After this, they went home and rebuilt their cities and towns, and were saved from extinction. This part of the narrative wrapped up as it had begun, with the reminder that, in those days, there was no king in Israel. All of the people did what was right, in their own eyes. No doubt. There are a few things that I need to cover from this part of the judge's narrative, which is how I'll wrap up this episode. A few of these don't fit neatly with anything else, but are worthy of being pointed out. First up is that the story is, in a few circles, thought to support the need for a monarch, hence the first and last passage, that there was no king, with everyone doing what they each thought was right, in their own eyes, and how this led to conflict, strife, war, death, kidnapping, and on and on. Part of the support of this thought, the story as support for a monarch, is that much of the tale unfolds in Ephraim, Bethlehem, and the like. As for Ephraim, this is the town from where Samuel hailed, who would anoint the first king Saul, and Bethlehem was the home of David. Then again, both of these places being part of the concubine story could be nothing more than coincidence. It's worth pointing out that unlike much of the Old Testament narrative, the concubine story with the follow-up war lacks many specifics, no dates or names to use as a fact check. We never learned the name of the Levite, despite numerous references, nor the leaders of each tribe. Despite numerous named judges from the era, where much less is written about, but their names and even the number of donkeys they owned are recorded. In fact, the only person named in the entire several-chapter episode is the high priest Phineas, and even that reference is in parentheses, possibly indicating it was a later addition. Even the wording of that part of the passage is rather suspect. The Ark of the Covenant of God was in Bethel then, and Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days. All parenthetical. There's a similar view that this story, specifically the first part, where the concubine was murdered, along with the just earlier tale of Micah's shrine, were supplemental material appended to the book of Judges in order to describe the chaos and depravity to which Israel had sunk by the end of the period of the Judges, as yet another justification of the need for a monarch. The lack of this ruler is mentioned in chapters 17, 18, 19, and 21. Most who support the supplemental material view posit that it was a post-exile author who added it, potentially in a political context, perhaps wanting the reader, or listener, as the case may be, to conclude that Israel works better when united than when everyone is left to their own devices, or every tribe is left to its own devices. As shown in this story, when the Israelites set out to avenge the death of one person, only to end up with likely over 70,000 dead, 26,000 plus people of Benjamin, 
at least 40,000 Israelites and an unknown number from Jabesh Gilead, and who knows how many others. An atrocity that led to an out-of-control downward societal spiral. There's also the theory that much of the tale was of a later date, potentially around the time of King David. In this theory, according to some researchers, the biblical text describing the battle and the events surrounding it are likely considerably later in date, originating close to the time of the Deuteronomist compilation of Judges from its original source material, with possibly several exaggerations in both numbers and modes of warfare. Think of the number of soldiers and how the left-handed slingshotters were accurate enough to hit a hair. There's also the similarity between the inhospitableness of the Jibeans in another much earlier tale in Genesis, when Abraham's nephew Lot has to deal with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Several biblical scholars have concluded that the account was an example of political spin, which could have been intended to disguise atrocities carried out by the tribe of Judah against Benjamin, potentially in the era of King David. These attacks as an act of revenge are spiked by David against the associates of King Saul. In the theory, they were cast further back in time and added a much more justifiable motive, though that last part, a more justifiable motive, would also have to be contextually dependent on the ancient reader's morals and sense of justice. I would hope a modern listener would view a bit differently the story of a near genocide due to the actions of a few specific people in a specific town. More modernly, scholars have suggested that it is more likely for the narrative to be based on a small kernel of truth, particularly since it accounts for the stark contrast in the biblical narrative between the character of the tribe before the incident and its character afterwards, such as when Benjamin was portrayed as being unjust, then as courageous. Now, try to square that circle. All of this provides me with a quite depressing place to end the episode, which for this tell seems rather appropriate. Join me next week when I'll circle back to a few of the places mentioned in the narrative around the Levite's concubine. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others define the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes or wherever you get the podcast from. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.